Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. Welcome back to the CCF podcast. We're going to be going through Matthew chapter 4. Last week when we left off, we actually had touched upon the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses when there's the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And um, I just kind of wanted to refresh the the main point from that talk was to show and tell how um, Jesus used the, the text um, as, as the primary means of of passing the test in the wilderness that every time um, that he was tempted with something, he, he quoted scripture in order to say that, that that's not the way that God wants you to do things. God wants you to be doing things this way. This is how I'm supposed to be following God. This is what I trust God to do. And so he always went back to scripture. He went back to God's word. He used text as an answer um, because that's what he's committed himself to in in chapter 3, when he does his baptism, he commits himself to be a person who follows the text. And we're going to see this uh, throughout Jesus's life. All of his teaching comes back to text. It refers to things that have happened in the Old Testament, things that have been told about. And so he's always going back to the text, the text, the text. It's just it's who Jesus is. It's It's who we should be. Um, it's it's how we should be following and re- responding to him. Um, but we've got some some more passages to look forward to. We got um, the rest of chapter four, and so uh, we're gonna kind of try to cover all of that scripture, verses twelve through twenty five today. So let's just start digging into some text and see what what it has to say. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, Again, just really quickly, verse 17 talks about how Jesus was teaching the the very same words, the very same message that John the Baptist was teaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think this is kind of the primary evidence we have that, that Jesus was um, a student under John the Baptist because he taught the same message that John the Baptist did, which is always at this time and period, if you have a rabbi, um, as a student of that rabbi, when you start teaching others, you teach your rabbi's message. And so Jesus teaches the message of John the Baptist. That's the very first thing he starts off when he starts teaching is the same message that John the Baptist has been preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So in these verses, we are having a little bit of a change of setting. And uh, right away in verse 12, it kind of establishes why this change of setting is happening. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Uh, So John the Baptist, uh, like I said, Jesus' teacher, has been put in prison, um, you know, possibly because of the things that he's been teaching. So Jesus is... um, 
you know, in the next couple verses, it says that he begins to teach and preach what Jesus was, what, sorry, what John was teaching and preaching. Um, and, and it's very likely, you know, that Jesus knows that this is the, the message that was getting John in trouble with other people and probably got him thrown in prison. And so you think that Jesus, like, you know, he's moving away to, to go to maybe a less risky area or something like that. But the funny thing is, um, Let's do a little or less in geography. Uh, the place where Jesus goes is is Capernaum, and, and the thing about Capernaum is that it's actually um, right next to one of Herod's palaces. Herod's the the leader of the the country, the guy who can by his authority, put people in prison. Actually, he's the one who put John the Baptist in prison. Not only that, he's the one who actually beheads John the Baptist later on. This is what Jesus does. Instead of fleeing, like maybe would be the seemingly smart thing to do, um, in order to preach John's message, he goes right into the heart, of the, the belly of the beast, so to speak, and he moves closer to Herod to preach the same message that John the Baptist is preaching that, that Herod has imprisoned John the Baptist for preaching. Jesus moves towards it. But not only that, it, it says in the text, um, he, he moves to this area to fulfill what was said through the prophet uh, Isaiah. And then it talks about um, Isaiah chapter nine. And, and there's a thing about any kind of reference that you see in, in the new Testament to old Testament text, especially when it's a direct reference. Um, if anything, a lot of times we'll see those and be like, Oh, okay. That's he's fulfilling prophecy. And we'll just kind of check, like there's another piece of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And, and I, I don't think that's the point that Matthew's trying to make. He's not trying to establish all of these. These are all the places in the old Testament where it's actually talking about Jesus. What he's trying to do is he's trying to bring about that text and say, guys, check out this text. Pay more attention to it. Don't just look at the first two verses that are that I've directly quoted here, but know the context of everything else that's going on in this particular part of of text, of scripture. And, and so I, I think we owe it to ourselves to go and to read not only those two verses, but, but most of the rest of that chapter of Isaiah chapter 9, and let's just kind of hear about what Isaiah was saying about about this time, about what's going on. So I'm going to read Isaiah 9, uh, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end." He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
so this this prophecy that I that Isaiah says, um, it's it's not just about this region, but it's about God helping people who've been oppressed, who've been in darkness, who've been in distress and gloom, being able to to rejoice, to be able to come out of that, to to find that that God is for them and, and God is bringing someone who will reign with, with justice and mercy and righteousness and, and that the zeal of the Lord almighty will, will accomplish this. This is what Matthew is bringing us to that passage of scripture that talks about the coming of one who is greater than all of that, that, that there's this new opportunity, that there's these things that are changing, that, that God is, is, is wanting us to be what he's always been calling us to be, uh, to take advantage of that. And that's the kind of message that Jesus is preaching, that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. God is doing something different here. He's changing around this landscape. He's making things different. And he's calling you to, to be the kind of people that you're supposed to be, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think Matthew uses Isaiah 9 here to, to, to tell the readers of his gospel, that, that when Jesus came about, it's the same kind of things that were happening that Isaiah was preaching about, that God is bringing about something new here, that there's opportunity here to be what God has called you to be. And then the next part in the text, Jesus is calling others to join him in that mission. In that mission. It says in verse 18 through 22, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is the the first place in in the text of Matthew where Jesus calls his first disciples. We've got four different two sets of brothers, four different men that that Jesus has called to to be his disciples. So I I, I mentioned earlier about um, the the text being uh, important and and when when we reference the text um, when when a gospel writer specifically references a couple verses of text we needed to be providing more context to that and, and part of the reason that we need to do more digging in and, and looking at more of what the context there is is because the the readers of Matthew's gospel again a Jewish audience whenever they read these verses they immediately are thinking of the rest of those passages. Because the Jews of this day, in an era that's known as Second Temple Judaism, they were people of the text. They were people who spent um, much of their youth memorizing text and, and getting to know what the scripture said. And in fact, they would be um, tested along as, as part of their educational process, that they needed to know text and know text and know text. And if they knew it well enough, they would be called to follow a rabbi. A rabbi would select them and say, you know your text, you're, you're putting things together, you're figuring things out, you, you have an idea of how God wants you to live, I want you to learn under me so that then you can go out and teach others to do likewise. A uh, rabbi took in disciples in order to teach them and bring them up so that they too could become rabbis who could take on disciples, who could teach them and bring them up to become rabbis, to have disciples. And, and so that's 
that's kind of their educational system is to get people who are so into the text and so know the text that they live out the text, they teach others to do likewise. But the thing about it is it's, that's kind of like the goal for everyone. They're trying to teach everyone to be that. Um, but there's some people, well, there's the vast majority of people who flunk out of that system because it's like really hard to memorize like all of scripture. And, and there's like three to 5% maybe that are good enough to be called by a rabbi to go follow. And, and in fact, in that day and age, uh, it's such an honor to be called by a rabbi that, that you would just immediately leave your family. You would leave everything behind uh, and you would follow that rabbi and the rabbi would essentially become your new family. And, and you would be treated as, as like his children. Because another thing about it is, is um, it's not exactly, we always picture, I think, the disciples as, as like the same age as Jesus. That in, they're like middle-aged guys or in their 30s or, or 20s or, you know, mid to late 20s or something. But if we're following the, the educational system and, and the timing of, of how this normally works when people are called to be disciples... Now, these disciples are probably like 12, 13, 14. Um, in fact, we see here in the calling of the first disciples that James and John are fishing with their father, which just sounds like a fun father-son activity. But really, they're fishermen, and their dad's a fisherman, and they're fishermen because their dad's a fisherman. Like, you, you have it you have the occupation that your father does and in your, you know, everything is a family business basically. And you're trained to be a part of that family business. But the thing is, if they're working with their father directly in, in that family business, that means that they haven't been Bob Mitzvah yet, which means that they're not yet 13. And so we've got brothers who are, who are, you know, 12 who are being called by Jesus to follow him. And so they leave their father and become Jesus' disciples. So I think that reframes a little bit more um, who these disciples are and what they're doing. Now, Peter and Andrew, probably a little bit older because they're they're fishing on their own. Um, they've already assumed their um, family business and, and are doing it on their own. So they've been bar mitzvah. They're, they're past 13. But they may not be that much older. Um, you know, they could be 14 or 15. Um, there's later on the text, we find out that Peter is married. He appears to be the only one that is married. So he's probably the oldest of the bunch, but you got married really young back then. So he still probably isn't all that old. He's maybe in his late teens as opposed to his early teens or preteens, like much of the disciples, uh, I would argue are, um, you can disagree with me about that. I don't think it changes the text that much. But maybe we can sense and understand why the disciples seem so immature at times, because they're still learning how to be adult humans. Um, but also, ancient times, very different adolescents um, and juvenile and adolescents, and it's it's just different framing than what we have now. So in my head, I always like to think of the disciples as college kids, because it kind of makes sense for that kind of transition time in life. They're kind of starting to become adults, but they're still kind of learning how to be adults. And so that's just kind of a good time frame, I think, in our modern context to think of the disciples as being a bunch of college kids. Um, so just hold on to that piece. And um, let's, uh, 
let's get into some some new text. Um, but uh, I, sorry, one last thing. The cool thing about Jesus calling out these disciples is he probably didn't know them. It's not his first interaction with these people. He's been observing them. They've probably uh, been around him in some of the other times when he's been teaching. Maybe they're at that very first lesson um, where he's telling them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And they're like, ooh, that's something I want to hold on to. Like, I heard that John the Baptist dude preaching this, but now this Jesus guy is preaching this. And and I really want to hear what else he has to say about this repenting and, and the kingdom of heaven. Like Jesus has probably noticed these guys and, and he sees something in them that says, these guys can be my disciples. They may have failed out of this system that, that has been established. They may been considered by others to be not good enough, but I see something there. I want them to be my disciples. And so Jesus is kind of a little bit more uh, radical, ragtag, rabbi kind of thing going on and, and his disciples are going to be like that and it's it's going to kind of catch some people off guard when he when he preaches even more and more and and yeah this jesus figure is pretty intriguing let's hear about some of the stuff that he he's done here in, in verses 23 to 25 the the end of chapter 4 Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So the thing that Jesus starts doing next is he starts healing people and not just healing people, not just like a doctor making people better, but he's also like driving out demons and and healing those who are who are paralyzed and some seemingly radical things. Now, I, I do want to stress that. Um, Jesus is not the only person that's performing miracles in this day and age. We have other ancient accounts of other teachers and other rabbis in, in Jesus' era. And um, they all they all perform miracles. Um, now, the, the whole demon possession thing is a little bit more extreme, a little bit different. Um, and there's actually going to be a time in the text a little bit later on that we're going to talk about that a little bit more directly. Um, so just know that that, that is a thing and I'm going to touch upon it, but not right now. Um, but just know that, that Jesus isn't the only one doing any kind of miracles, um, healing people that, that the rest of the world can explain how they are suddenly better. Um, but Jesus does this. And like I said, there's, there's a lot more to say about Jesus healing, that we're going to get into um, some very specific passages that it, that address it a little bit more directly and a little bit more detail, and we'll have some good time to get into what it looks like to be healed and what Jesus is doing with that. The thing I actually want to emphasize in this part, though, is that verse 25, when it talks about the large crowds. Now, I, I think they're probably intrigued because Jesus is healing people, and they're trying to figure out how to maybe how to get a piece of that or how to work with that. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on but the cool thing here is the description in the diversity of this crowd because it talks about how they're large crowds from galilee which is the region that they're in it makes sense there'd be people from galilee there okay we're cool with that the decapolis um the decapolis like literally means 10 cities 
And the reason it's kind of referred to as the 10 cities is there's this clumping uh, of cities across the uh, Red Sea um, from, from Israel uh, that is uh, it's a huge grouping of Gentile pagan cities. These are, these are not Jewish settlements. These are not Jewish cities. Part of the reason they call it the Decapolis is because the Jews didn't actually like to refer to any of the cities by name because they didn't really like acknowledging the people that came from there because they were Gentiles, they were pagans, they were Romans, they were the other that they didn't want to talk about, that they didn't want to acknowledge, that they didn't want to recognize. And yet these people who were essentially unspeakable from the perspective of most of the Jews of this time, are coming to hear Jesus teach. They're intrigued by what he's saying, and and they want to hang out where this guy's hanging out, and they want to know what he says. Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, the place where the, the elites tend to be, the place where the priests tend to be, specifically um, maybe these referring to Sadducees, which is this corrupt priesthood that has all the power in Jerusalem and is kind of consumed with that. There's apparently people from this area that are intrigued by Jesus teaching. This is a very different group than the people that are in Galilee. There's There's people from Judea, and we don't necessarily understand this, but Judea and Galilee kind of had this distrust, hatred of one another. Um, it's it, it's kind of like when you have different regions within a country that, that just kind of speak ill of one another. So the Galileans are kind of the rednecks. They're the backwoods, country, folk, however you want to say it. Um, that That's how they're viewed, especially by the Judeans. The Judeans are kind of the educated elites of that time frame. And so they look as the Galileans as these just kind of uneducated hicks for lack of a better term. And, and Judeans dislike Galileans, Galileans just dislike Judeans. They don't want to hang out in the same places together. And yet there's Judeans who are coming to be around these Galileans to be in Galilee because they want to hear Jesus's teaching. And then the region across the Jordan, uh, there's a lot to uh, potentially interpret by what that means. Um, essentially, it's possible that this is actually referring to zealots. Um, if you don't know anything about zealots, essentially, that's a group in Jesus's time uh, that decided that they were, it's a Jewish group that decided they were so sick of Roman rule that they would do anything that they possibly could uh, to overthrow that rule. And so they're kind of the militant, uprising, domestic terrorist group of Jesus's era. That um, it, there's an elite squad of zealots that in order to become a zealot, you have to assassinate a Roman guard. And that's like the initiation rite. These are the zealots. They are they're hardcore, intense, anti-Roman people. And they're, it, it, the region across the Jordan could refer to this group. And they're, they're hanging out with people from Jerusalem who, if it's the Sadducees, they've been propped up by Roman rule. They are taking full advantage of the power and wealth and prestige that being part of the Roman Empire gives them people 
that do not want to hang out together are a part of this big crowd that are all listening to Jesus' teaching and trying to figure out what is this guy doing. And the thing about it is, I think what Matthew's trying to say is, hey guys, this message that Jesus is preaching, it's for everybody. If you're part of the power structure, it's for you. If you're violently rebelling against the power structure, it's for you. If if you're part of the educated elite, it's for you. If you're part of the backwoods, backwater hicks, it's for you. It's for you. It's for your neighbor that despises you. It's for your neighbor that you despise. This message here is for everyone. And the message that comes immediately following this description of this diverse group is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is like the most powerful um, it's the heart of Jesus's ministry. It's his big message, and Matthew uses it as his introduction of this is what Jesus is all about. This is his teaching. This is the thing. And he sets it up with this context of saying, and everybody was there, everybody from every walk of life, every different path, every different upbringing at this point in time, everybody that could have been there was wanting to be there to hear this message, to be a part of this, because this message works for everybody. Jew, Gentile, elite, backwater, rebel, doesn't matter who you are, this sermon is for you. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.